The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's reading is Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me, My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. I am privileged to preach to you out of Psalm 26 as we continue our series in the Psalms. If you don't know me, my name is Nick Clatterbuck. I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you don't know, I'm not a full-time pastor here. I'm actually an attorney by trade. I've been an attorney for about 13 years. And so when I was first starting out 13 years ago, I was just this young associate at a big historic firm here in Omaha. And my whole strategy for survival there was to just sort of stay out of the spotlight. I was going to help from the background. I didn't want to be in a position where I could fail or screw something up or really look incompetent. It wasn't a very courageous strategy, but it was a strategy. (laughs) Well, at the time, I was working with this partner named John, and John had this big patent litigation case out in California, and John was going to bring me out to help him with his oral argument. I don't know if any of you have been to federal court before. I I hope, actually, most of you have had no reason to go to federal court. (laughs) But this place is designed to be intentionally intimidating. We're talking like 20, 30-foot ceilings, wood paneling on all the walls. The bench the judge sits on, it feels like the judge's feet are like where that first break in the wood paneling is up there. I mean, I've seen attorneys who've been practicing for like two or three decades just like melt into puddles, just stuttering and stammering. It's intimidating. So you can imagine me with a strategy of just trying to hang in the background. This is a pretty uncomfortable place to go into. But we get into the oral argument. Things are going great. I've got my little table over here while John's up at the podium, and I can slip him notes or whisper something to him during a break. And so we're getting through this thing. And then, you know, we're getting close to the end, and the judge says, hey, guys, go out, sort of get your final points in order, and come back in, and we'll finish this thing up. That's great. So I go in the hallway with John, and I say, John, here's the four points I think we really need to hit before we leave. And John looks at me and says, hey, Nick, that sounds great. Here's what I want to happen. You're going to argue points one through three, and I'm going to argue point four. And I said, what? I mean, here I am just trying to avoid the spotlight, and now John has given me 45 seconds to prepare for my first 
oral argument in federal court. I would have been terrified if there was time to be terrified. Instead, I had to march in there, get behind the podium, look at that judge, deliver the argument, and you know what? I survived. I did fine. And I actually walked out of there with a lot more confidence than I had when I, was, when I went in. It was one of the things I appreciated so much about John, his ability to instill confidence in unique ways. He was always telling us, hey, don't pay attention to those flashy degrees or those big resumes that the people were going up against. Nick, you're just as bright and as smart and hardworking as them. And even when he was lying, it, it, it had this way of assuring me of what I was doing and what I could accomplish. John knew that if I had more confidence, I'd actually be a better help to my clients. I'd actually enjoy what, I'm, what I was doing. I'd be more engaged. See, what John knew was the dignity of confidence. And I think all of us inherently know the dignity of confidence to some degree. It's why we admire confidence in our favorite athletes. It's why we follow confident leaders. It's even why we work to instill confidence in our kids. We know there's something beautiful about a person who knows who they are and where they are going. But as much as we appreciate confidence, it's hard to find confidence ourselves, right? I mean, we have seen so much feigned artificial confidence of people who are arrogant or of ill will, and we want no part of that. So we're more likely to be deferential or just be passive so we aren't seen as arrogant too. At the same time, we're so well acquainted with our own failures and weaknesses, so unsure of our own abilities that we'd much rather just fumble in the shadows like a young Nick Clatterbuck rather than stepping up in confidence to lead in our family, in our workplaces, even here among, God, among God's church. We can admit that we have room to grow in embodying humble, godly confidence. King David, on the other hand, does not have this problem. David is the author of Psalm 26, and in it, he puts his humble, godly confidence on full display. First, he's confident in his relationship with God. He marches right into the throne room of God and says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. He's comfortable in addressing God openly and honestly and directly. He's confident in his relationship with himself. Verse 2 says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He's not pretending. He's not hiding. He's an open book before God and before his fellow man. He's also confident in where he's going. Because he's got a solid relationship with the Lord because he knows who he is, he can assertively say what he's going to do with his life. Verse 12, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The sort of assertive godly confidence was a big part of David's character throughout his life. It's what allowed him as a young shepherd to kill a bear and a lion with his bare hands. It's what led him to be the only man in Israel who was brave enough to stand up to Goliath. And he killed the giant and set God's people free. It's what allowed him when he was a king to protect the people from the Philistines and bring the ark of God back into Jerusalem and secure the worship of God's people. I have to imagine it was a large part of what led, what led God to say, this David, he's a man after my own heart. And it makes me wonder, what would it be like if I had that sort of confidence? What if I was so secure in my relationship with God? What if I was so comfortable in who I was before him and before all of you? Man, what good could I do if I could operate with that sort of confidence in my family and in my workplace and here at church? Well, Coram Deo, God wants each and every one of us to have this sort of confidence. 
And he's given us Psalm 26 in part to show us what this confidence in, what this confidence is, where it comes from, how we can grow in it. And what's interesting, like many things in our Christian walk, we don't actually aim at confidence in order to get it. We actually have to aim at something entirely different. And the thing that Psalm 26 is going to encourage us to aim at is actually integrity. Look at verse 1. David says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. The thing that David points to is the grounding for his confidence is that he walks in integrity. And that's the big idea of Psalm 26. Godly confidence comes from personal integrity. Godly confidence comes from personal integrity. By definition, integrity means the state of being whole and undivided, of having internal consistency and lack of corruption. When we think of integrity, we think of a person who says what he means and does what he says. The integrity that Psalm 26 is going to show us is similar, but it also has some distinctly Christian elements that are particularly suited for the life of love and service that God wants us to lead. Psalm 26 is actually going to give us three tests of whether we are pursuing the type of integrity that's going to lead to godly confidence. Here are those three tests. First, where are your eyes? Second, where is your heart? And third, where are your feet? So first, where are your eyes? In his bold opening address to God, David makes an interesting statement, and I wonder if you caught it. Verses 1 through 3. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And here comes a key statement. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Notice he does not say, my steadfast love is before my eyes, or I walk in my own faithfulness. No, the entire grounding of David's confidence is in God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards him. David somehow knows that the process of becoming a whole, undivided person of integrity does not begin with his own effort and ability. In short, David's eyes are on God and not himself. And listen, this is an amazing insight because it gives us a whole new way to pursue confidence. The reason why we often get confidence so wrong is we base so much of it on our own performance. I mean, on good days when we read our Bibles and mow our neighbor's lawn and we pray for our friends before bed, we feel really good about ourselves. Then on other days when we yell at our kids or ignore our coworkers or just Netflix and chill instead of reading God's word, we can feel pretty rotten. We're unsure of our relationship with God. We're unsure if he can use us for his kingdom purposes. But listen, looking at your own day-to-day -day performance is not a good strategy for establishing integrity and confidence. It causes all sorts of problems for us. Here's one of them. Measuring integrity by your own performance can make you a condescending jerk. Here's what I mean. When you base your confidence on your day-to-day -day performance, what you're really saying is this. I believe that I am fully capable of doing whatever God requires of me today. The only thing standing in my way is my desire and my commitment and my determination to carry it out. So on days when you feel like you do that, you get pretty puffed up, right? After all, it was your desire, your determination, your commitment that got the job done. Not only that, but you can be tempted to look down on others who are not doing quite as well and think, man, if they just had the same desire and commitment, they could do it too. And maybe if they were just a little bit more like, I don't know, say me, then maybe they could perform the way that God wants them to perform. 
But listen, this is no place from which you can actually love or help other people, right? When you are operating out of a performance mindset, your advice to others is going to sound less like help and more like another burden. Your presence will not be uplifting to them. It will be defeating. Instead of pointing them to Jesus who can actually help, you're going to be tempted to point them to otherworldly advice on how they too can try harder and exert more effort just to perform better. If you've ever received that type of counsel before, you know it can be exhausting and unhelpful. And if you don't believe me, you can just ask my wife. I mean, I remember when we were a brand new married couple and all I wanted was for a, to have a marriage that honored the Lord. And I was so excited about that. And so in my mind, that meant, man, we're going to be reading our Bible together every morning. We're going to be praying deeply together every night. We're going to be sharing in deep spiritual conversations. And as many of you know, the realities of life set in. That's just not the rhythm. And so I was getting really anxious. And that anxiety was spilling over onto my wife and I was starting to pressure her in weird ways. Hey, how much of your Bible have you, have you read today? Hey, you should read some more. Hey, you should really be praying for these friends of yours. Hey, we really need to have more spiritual conversations. And my wife, in her wisdom, and as God's grace to me, her basic response was like, yeah, buddy, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, this is not the way it works. You see, Sarah understood in that moment better than me that no matter how much spiritual activity we could pack into our marriage, we weren't going to impress God. Our life and our marriage wasn't meant to be a performance. It was meant to be a worshipful enjoyment of the one who is so much better than us and yet showed us so much grace. This is why it is so important for us to be a people that have their eyes on the immense and unattainable perfection and holiness of God. We need to be a people who understand and resonate with truths like Exodus 15.11. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Not us. We don't do wonders. Our holiness is not majestic. It's pretty meager. But keeping our eyes on God's holiness and his glorious deeds helps us from being so impressed with our own. It frees us to actually help people from a place of humility that isn't possible when we're puffed up by our own performance. So listen, if you want to have humble, godly confidence, if you want to be able to love and help people, if you don't want to be a condescending jerk, get your eyes off yourself and get them on to the holiness and perfection of God. That's not our only problem here. Measuring integrity by your, own, by your own performance can also make you a shrinking violet, can make you weak and cowardly. If you look to your own performance for confidence, and that makes you conceited and condescending on your good days, then on your bad days, it can have an equal and opposite effect. On your bad days, you're likely to be full of shame, self-loathing, fear, timidity, all sorts of other negative beliefs that Satan wants to use to take you out of the game, to make you so anxious about your own performance that you're really not any help to anyone else. I don't know if you've ever experienced in, in your gospel community, but over 15 years of, of gospel community, I've experienced a lot of this, where somebody begins their contribution to a discussion with something like this. Hey, here's what I think, but I don't know if I'm right, Actually, I'm probably wrong. I know the Bible probably says this someplace, but I, I mean, if I read my Bible more, maybe I'd know this. You guys can probably correct me. I mean, it's just like two minutes of disclaimers before you actually say anything. I, I've done that. You guys have done that, and it's weird. <laughs> or how many of you have talked yourself out of a role in serving here at church or in your gospel community because you think, man, they really need somebody who's more godly than me. 
They need somebody with more experience. Or how about this? Man, if they really knew the things I struggle with or the things I have in my past, they wouldn't have asked me to fill that role. Man, in those moments, can't you see that Satan is just running a game on you? He's trying to keep you from using the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you to help others around you. The truth we need to see is that God's ability to use us in powerful ways is not based on our performance. It's not dependent upon our perfection. If it was, then David would not be our exemplar of godly confidence. Remember, David is the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba. And if that weren't enough, he went ahead and murdered her husband so that he could have her for himself. This is bad stuff. And listen, David's not ignorant of his own sin. He's not pretending here. David was well acquainted with the fact he was a sinner. I mean, Psalm 25, the psalm right before this, David says this, Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not my transgressions. But somehow David knew that God's faithfulness and love towards him was far greater than his own sin. He knew that God could still blot out his transgressions, great as they were, and use David again for his kingdom. Remember Psalm 51, David's great poem of repentance. We sang a whole bunch of it a little bit ago. Here's what he says. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's the cleansing part. And then here's what he says right after. Then, then because you've cleansed me, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For David, one of the primary purposes of God cleansing him was that so he could sent back to be a confident ambassador of God's kingdom, even after the greatest and most atrocious sin he could ever commit. And listen, if David could understand this a thousand years before Jesus was born, how much more should we understand this from our perspective? We have the full gospel of Jesus Christ before us. This Jesus who came and said, I don't come to call the righteous, I come to call sinners. This Jesus who spent his life doing work and ministry around ordinary, broken people like me and you. This Jesus who went to the cross to be a sacrifice of atonement, to take the transgressors of sinners and wipe them clean forever. This Jesus who got out of the grave to give us a new righteousness, not dependent upon our performance, but on his. And after all of that, Jesus gets his disciples together and says, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And what I've decided is I'm going to take redeemed sinners like you and I'm going to do my work through you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, Jesus has done everything possible to send broken sinners like us out into the world as confident ambassadors of his kingdom. No matter what's in your past, no matter what your current struggles are, if you are in Christ, God has cleansed you and wants to use you. This should give you great confidence. But it will require you to get your eyes off yourself and get them on to Jesus. And listen, if you're somebody here who's not yet a Christian, maybe you're investigating this Jesus guy, if you don't hear anything else from me, hear this. What I want you to know is Jesus just doesn't want to give you a new set of rules to perform by. He doesn't say, okay, go, here's a new set of rules. Go and perform according to these. No, coming to Jesus is the end of your performance. It no longer defines you. You get to be defined by what Jesus has done. 
by being part of God's family, by doing the work that God has created you to do. That's good news. That's so much better than performing. So where are your eyes? Are they on your own wins and accomplishments in a way that is puffing you up with harmful pride? If so, repent. Pursue integrity by setting your eyes on the holiness and perfection of God. Or are your eyes set on your own sins and shortcomings in a way that's making you shrink back from God and from his people? If so, repent. Pursue integrity by setting your eyes on Jesus who knows all your sin and loves you the same, who's done everything possible to make you a confident ambassador for his kingdom. That's our first test. Where are your eyes? Here's our second test. Where is your heart? As evidence of his own integrity, David points to the things that he loves and the things that he hates from the depths of his being. Verse 5, I hate the assembly of the evildoers. Verse 8, oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house. This points us to the reality that as God makes us in disciples, he doesn't just care about what we think with our heads, but what we love with our hearts. He's interested in what you care most deeply about. It is true that you're going to be led forward in life by the things that you love. If you love classic rock like my boys do right now, you're probably going to know some ACDC songs. If you love Husker men's athletics like I do, you're going to wear lots of red. You may develop a deep sense of cynicism and hopelessness, (laughs) unavoidable feelings of impending doom. It just kind of comes with the territory nowadays. But, but if you love God and the things that God's about, you're going to become like him. You'll be full of mercy and love and charity and justice. As our friend James K.A. Smith likes to say, you are what you love. But how do you decide what to love? Can you decide what to love? Our culture would say no. Actually, your desires and your loves are hardwired into you. If you want to have any hope of joy in this life, you need to run after those desires as hard and as far as you can. But Psalm 26 points us in a whole different direction. It says that our loves are something we need to carefully protect and cultivate and push and shape in an intentional direction. Look at verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. See, David here is intentionally and willfully protecting his heart from the corrupting influences of wicked people. And listen, we already know that David is not basing his integrity on his own performance. So I don't think here he's like worried about soiling his reputation or somehow having a black mark on his resume before God. You hang out with the wrong people. Now, I think David is rightfully worried that if he hangs out and consorts with the hypocrites and evildoers, his heart will be enticed away from God. It will be shaped in the ways that their hearts are shaped. And David is not about to let that happen. He's resolute that he will not put himself in a position to be tempted away from his pursuit of the Lord. And here's what I think we need to hear as a church from this part of Psalm 26. Personal integrity means saying no to things sometimes. A necessary part of being a committed disciple of Jesus Christ is deciding what people and influences and situations you need to avoid simply because you're committed to cultivating a heart that loves God. Listen, I love the fact that we are not legalists around here. We don't name and shame every negative influence in the culture. 
Actually, we celebrate God's common grace through music and art and movies and literature that is not explicitly Christian, and that is really good. But the danger for us then is that we can be too ready to surround ourselves with influences that are just not helpful to our discipleship. We can try too hard to redeem things that God would want us to reject. We have to remember the same Jesus that said, nothing that goes into your body can defile, also said, hey, if your right hand's causing you to sin, you should think long and hard about cutting the thing off. It's a very live conversation in our house right now. Like I said, my boys are really into classic rock right now. There's some ACDC songs that are fun and we can celebrate as a family, and there's others that should never be played in a Christian household ever. It's not good for their development. It's not good for my heart. And listen, I'm reluctant to give too many examples here, right? Because apart from the things that God explicitly forbids, like pornography and other illicit materials, really as Christians, everything's permissible for us. But not everything is good. So you have to think long and hard. You have to wrestle with the Lord. Hey, what's my engagement with Twitter going to be like? How should I participate in Instagram? Man, what should my family's interaction with youth sports be? Should I consume cable news media? Here's the question. What things in your life do you need to say no to simply because you want to cultivate a heart that loves God? What things do you need to say no to? You see, the highest measure of Christian integrity is not in performing perfectly. It's in having a heart that loves God and is committed to following him no matter what the costs are. Doesn't mean you're going to fall by the wayside or get pulled away by something. That happens. But when you realize you're there, you're going to leave that thing aside and you're going to run to Jesus. That is a heart that has integrity. That's how we answer the question, where is our heart? So here's our final test, our final test of integrity. Number three, where are your feet? First of all, are your feet moving or are they standing still? Look at verses four and five. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. What David's trying to avoid here is slowing down, sitting down, even getting stuck in the ways of the wicked. It's a warning against passivity and discipleship of unthinking engagement with the world. But contrast that with the action and the verbs in verses 6 and 7. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. Or verses 11 and 12, I shall walk in my integrity. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is a reminder that discipleship is not a merely intellectual activity. It's not just about what we assent to with our heads. In fact, David says very little, if anything at all, about belief here. He's only concerned what his actual feet and hands and voice are doing in the real world. For David, having personal integrity means living a life that puts faith into action. And man, do I need to hear this. Over the years, I've gotten really good at using the gospel to make myself feel better. I can use scripture to assuage my feelings of guilt or shame over past sins. I can use the gospel to pick me up and encourage me when I feel down or discouraged. You know what? Praise God. That's good. God wants us to use the gospel to get a sense of peace and hope as individuals. But that's not all the gospel is meant to do. See, over the past year or two, I've noticed in myself this sort of underdeveloped ability to to love other people in tangible ways. I know I love ideas. Sometimes I don't love people so well. 
When friends are experiencing pain or loss, I don't know what to say, and so I really don't say much. There are broken relationships and situations in my life that I don't know how to fix, so my most common response is to debate and to delay until I can convince myself I'm not going to be really any help at all. I'm slow to offer help when I don't know how to help. And I imagine some of you can relate. Now listen, I don't want to be overdramatic here. I'm not as bad as I could be. And by God's grace, none of you are as bad as you could be either. But here's the deal. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be skilled at loving my wife and my kids and my coworkers and the people of this church like Jesus loves them. I want to be ready for Jesus to send me into any situation with practical help, with hope, with the good news of the gospel. I think a lot of us want that. And the good news is because Jesus has given us his righteousness, we don't have to be so worried about how well we're doing it. We get to jump in, take a step of faith, and the Holy Spirit's going to grow us through trying and failing and learning and trying again. The Holy Spirit is not opposed to using trial and error in making us more like Christ. So, Cormdale, where does your faith need to move your feet this morning? Knowing that Jesus has given you everything you need to step out in confidence, what conversation do you need to start? What tangible need is God asking you to fill? What's something you need to do this morning just as a simple act of obedience and trust in God? Having integrity as a Christian means letting your love for Jesus move you out into tangible action, particularly in loving and serving others. And I'm committing myself to following God, trusting in Jesus, seeing where I can go with this. I imagine it's going to take 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's going to take the rest of my life for God to grow me more into the image of Christ and practically loving other people. But I'm here for it. Are you here for it? Can we walk together in that? Now, if you'll allow me one final point of application. It must be noted where David's feet are geographically in this passage. I mean, where is he? He's in the household of God. He's going around God's altar. He's blessing the Lord in the great assembly. He's loving the habitation of God's house in the place where his glory dwells. As you think about where God might be calling you to step out in confidence, let me encourage you, don't forget about the house of the Lord. Don't forget about the church. God wants his people to be about the community of God. That's why we unashamedly want to invite people to come and worship here with us in this building. It's why we want everyone to be connected to a gospel community. It's why when the time is right, we want to invite people to church membership and greater levels of service. Not because we're trying to build a kingdom of our own here. Not because we just need warm bodies. But we're convinced that this is what God's actually going to use to grow you in integrity and confidence and Christ-likeness. So as you consider where God is calling you to step forward, would you consider those questions? Man, is God just inviting me to come back to worship after a time of being away? Is he calling you to join up and start regularly attending a gospel community? Is he calling you to help lead a gospel community? Is he calling you to pursue church membership? Take those things before the Lord. Talk to him. See where he might be calling you. So that's it. Those are our tests of integrity. Where are our eyes? 
Are they on God and his goodness, or are they on ourselves and what we can accomplish? Where is your heart? Is it fully committed to the Lord? Are you ready to lay aside anything that would keep you from chasing after God? Where are your feet? Are they pursuing others in love and good works? Are they busy here amongst the people of God? Cormdale, if we are committed to those things, if they're in us and they're growing in any degree, we can have great confidence that God is going to do great things through us in his kingdom. Let me now pray and ask God to make these things true about us. Jesus, we thank you that the starting place for our confidence and integrity is in what you have already accomplished for us in your perfect life, your sacrificial death, and your glorious resurrection. It's a special thing that because you've loved and redeemed sinners like us, we can actually be called to confidently serve you and your purposes. Help us to be a people that look not to their own accomplishments or shortcomings, but instead to your holiness and grace. Help us to have hearts that are intensely devoted to you, not because we're desperate to prove something or gain something, but because we love you and we want to become more like you. Give us confidence to be a people that are on the move in loving and serving others in this city. And Lord, if there are any here who are considering whether or not to join up with you, would you let them know that you don't call them to more performance. You call them to rest in peace and trust in you and to be sent out as confident ambassadors of your kingdom. Would you make things true in and among us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.